0: Welcome everyone to our NCAA social series. I'm Andy Katz. I'm pleased to be joined by three university presidents. Dr. Thice Miller, who's the president of Hamline University in St. Paul University St. Paul, Minnesota. Tori McClure, the president of Spalding University in Louisville, Kentucky, and Dr. David Wilson, the president of Morgan State University in Maryland. Uh, If I can start going around the horn here, if you will, and I will start with you, um, Dr. Miller, let's just first deal with the raw emotion of the past month, um, because at least for me, and I think countless other Americans and really citizens across the globe, this feels different uh, than any other injustice that we've seen um, really in the last decade or more. Um, Why do you think this moment in time that we're experiencing since the murder of George Floyd, uh, why do you think it feels different? And I'll start with you, Dr. Miller.
1: Well, I think the reason why it feels different has a lot to do with what's going on with COVID-19 right now. I think that people are home, people are are paying attention to what's going on around them in a way that they might not have before. And I think that um, people are stepping back with the news that's out there, the racial disparities we're seeing in terms of COVID-19, the economic disparities that have been uh, unveiled because of COVID-19, uh, there is so much now that people are becoming aware of that I'm not so sure that they fully understood it until people began to die and it was they're dying along racial economic lines. So I think that that has brought attention to this issue in a way that it that I'm
2: not so sure what any other event could have. Ms. McClure? Yeah, I think it's different in that the we've seen deaths of Black citizens before. But the murder of George Floyd, there was no way to view that other than a murder. And, and while there have been lots of other episodes that um, were similar, played out the same way. Certainly uh, for communities could see that and feel the same sense of injustice, but this was unequivocally um, a murder, and it was one that was witnessed globally. And there weren't any mitigating circumstances. There weren't any, I mean, we've heard excited delirium. We've heard all sorts of other things, but there was nothing, uh, uh, typically, I imagine I'm not uh, unusual, A white person sees the episode and begins to work back until you find something that justifies the behavior. What we should be doing is starting from the birth of the individual and moving forward and seeing the system that we've created that is so biased and racist that these things happen with more rapidity and regularity than any of us wanted to admit. And there's no escaping it. The the cloud of witnesses, is global, yeah. Dr. Wilson?
3: You know, I I agree with the of uh, my colleagues, uh, but I do think that in this instance, it was the clarity in which this murder presented itself to us. Um, Here you had Mr. Floyd, who gave no evidence at all that he had resisted arrest and you had a white police officer with his knee on his neck for what seemed like an eternity and here is mr floyd really begging for life begging for mercy while he is smelling the asphalt and dying and calling for his mother and saying i can't breathe while you are killing me and i think it's the first time that I, the father of a 23-year-old, cried. I mean, I was angry. I shed a tear because I had to put myself in the position, or I did, that that's my son. Those are my brothers. And I'm seeing this injustice play out. And so I think everybody kind of looked at that across all racial lines, across all age groups, and said, this is not who we are as a country, is not who we are as a nation. And we've seen too many of these killings, but this one was different because of that video. And I really take my head off to whomever shot these videos. It was very, very clear. And I think it presented itself as the absolute ultimate Indignity and inhumanity of man toward man.
1: You know, the the, the, the reason the reason why I brought up COVID-19 is because Philandro Castile was shot and murdered a mile from my campus. George Floyd was less than 10 miles away from my campus. If you remember Philandro Castile in his car with a baby in the back seat that was also videotaped. We did not get the national outrage. People were outraged, but it wasn't the same kind of response to Philandro Castile where people took to the streets across the world. And that's the reason why I think that because people could had very little else to focus on, because they're home, they're watching the news, they're paying attention to these things, it was in their face in a way that the Philandro Castile, the Breonna Taylor. All those were not, although that one one happened at this time as well, were not in your face. People could see it in a way that they could dismiss it or they weren't in the moment. This is a moment where you couldn't Mm -hmm. couldn't turn away from it. You couldn't disregard it. It was there. It was there. So when I think about Philandro Castile in a car with a baby in the back seat, Mm -hmm. we did not as a nation respond in the same way but we did with George Floyd because we had nothing else taking our attention away from it.
0: So to that point, uh, Dr. Wilson, um, Freddie Gray uh, in the Baltimore area, you're in the state of Maryland. Uh, How much do you agree with what Dr. Miller just said about the nation's focus? It might've been a, a big issue locally at the time with Freddie Gray, but it still didn't resonate as much.
3: Well, that's I think in part because we did not see the literal life leaving Freddie Gray's body. Uh, And we saw it here, Uh, and we saw it in graphic ways. Uh, Now, uh, here on our campus, uh, we had a similar reaction. We had a similar reaction to the death of Freddie Gray. We had a similar reaction to Michael Brown. We had a similar reaction to Trayvon Martin. Um, And that reaction was, uh, my students are saying, we are seeing so many young people die who look like us. Uh, and when uh, Mr. Brown uh, was was killed, uh, Andy, uh, I went with my students to march across campus at that time too, the way I did uh, with Mr. Floyd, and they were so angry, they were so upset. And I left the campus for an hour, and I got a call that I had 125 students in my office, and. My sister wanted to know, well, what, what should I do? And I said, nothing. And I raced back and they were everywhere because they needed an authority figure or someone to receive their hurt and to receive their pain. So it did kind of play itself out in the Frederick Gray situation with regard to the way I saw protest here in Baltimore. Uh, but I think the level of the anger with regard to Mr. Floyd Uh, was something unlike which I have seen.
0: So, I want to get the pulse of these three different cities that you're all in, because they've been, as we've just discussed, hotbeds of outrage. Um, St. Paul, Minnesota, the Twin Cities, obviously. Uh, We mentioned Breonna Taylor and what has happened in Louisville, where you are, uh, Ms. McClure. And then, of course, uh, over the last couple of years with Freddie Gray in Baltimore. Uh, So, all three of these parts of the country Know have experienced this rage, this anger, and as you get to this point later in the summer, early fall, and we'll get to this here momentarily about welcoming back your student body. uh, Let's start um, with you, uh, Dr. Miller, about if you could give me a sense of the pulse of your city, St. Paul, and the Twin Cities, and then if we can go around to Louisville and Baltimore. Start with you, Dr. Well, you
1: know, people here are angry. People here are tired because um, we're not talking about George Floyd, we're talking about several murders that have occurred in the last three years by police officers towards black males. So it has been uh, pretty, uh, it's in your face. Um, I live across the street from the governor. So there have been protests. I am very proud and honored to say that my students and faculty and staff are out there with the protesters. Uh, because they realize that something has to change. So there, there, there are clear efforts to change. You're hearing the conversations that are going on about, around the nation about what do we do with law enforcement. On our campus, we have a criminal justice program. We've been working with the St. Paul police for quite some time, uh, which is one of the reasons why you don't see or hear some of the same things happening with the St. Paul police that you hear with the Minneapolis police. They're, they're different. So people are, are paying close attention to what's going on, People are demanding change. Um, People are expecting change, and people are actively involved in moving that change forward. We are involved in every possible way. But while we're doing that, while we're doing that, we're also trying to make sure that our neighborhoods and our and our our staff and faculty heal because they live in the communities. My campus is right smack in in a community where a, a pharmacy was burned down, right near our right basically on our campus. Um, But I have faculty and staff who live in neighborhoods where there are no more grocery stores, there are no more um, gas stations. They're burned to the ground. So we're all trying to figure out how we heal. At the same time, we try and bring about justice and social change. That's what's going on here in the Twin Cities.
2: So in in Moivo, we had the death of Breonna Taylor followed um, in. Close order with the death of David McAtee, and um, I think what's different with the intervening death of George Floyd is the sense—I don't know—the sense of personal responsibility that um, I see colleagues feeling about this. In that, I mean, I've, I've talked about—I um, was introduced to James Baldwin when I was a divinity student, and. I thought I understood when he wrote about the weight of white people, I thought it was just like, okay, the black community has to drag us around as an anchor. But when I watched that white police officer on the neck of George Floyd, the weight of white people took on a whole different meaning for me. And that sense of our campus is in the heart of downtown Louisville. A third of our students are from underrepresented minorities, mostly black. And every building on our campus has had some form of vandalism. And I've admitted to being secretly proud of that because it means we're at the center of the, the need, the center of the outrage. And I want to make sure that that outrage is turned to some action from the white community to, to make sure that this doesn't, we're, 20 years from now, we're not repeating the same outrage. Outrage is the first step toward toward hope. And the other thing I'm seeing, and my household is not uncommon in Kentucky. I'm out with the protesters, protesting away. My husband's a member of the police foundation board. And so that that sense of division that is being fanned in some circles um, is something that we really need to reach across as educators to um, not take sides so firmly that we can't hear um, the cries for justice that are coming from folks who really need to be heard. And
3: what we're seeing in uh, Baltimore is That number one, um, there is a kind of a skepticism uh, with regard to policing in the city. And it's been around for a while. Uh, But one of the byproducts of what unfortunately happened with Mr. Gray uh, was that the uh, federal uh, government came in and there was uh, pretty much a decree um, in, in order and they're kind of working their way through that. So it's a lot of A lot of mistrust on the part of law enforcement in our city. Uh, And our university uh, did a couple of things. So, shortly after uh, Mr. Gray's death, uh, I put in place uh, a group here of about 30 people, a task force called Gray Days, uh, Brighter Tomorrows. And we wanted to understand, as an anchor institution in Baltimore, what could we do? for education to promote economic development and those kinds of things that we are seeing now on earth as a result of COVID-19 these kind of disparities and so we're moving those projects along and people are really embracing of of the economic development activity that Morgan State is leading in and around neighborhoods to bring uh, supermarkets because this is a food desert had been um, and so there's some excitement there uh, then uh, we had a unit on campus that um, was asked um, by uh, the um, court uh, to uh, conduct a survey uh, on the attitudes of Baltimoreans with regard to policing, and and the results were unbelievable. So, so you had um, within uh, the white upper class community. Um, a really high regard for policing. Uh, and uh, they, they, somewhere between 75, 80%, you know, felt uh, very, very comfortable and the police were doing what they wanted to do. Um, as you kind of moved across the city and you got into a predominantly black neighborhoods, it was just the opposite. So there's this huge gulf uh, that exists out there uh, between how one race of individuals is seeing policing versus another. And I think we're trying to kind of figure out here, how do we move this forward? And then last, uh, just a couple of days ago, um, there's an interesting discussion just that is unfolding, but it's now made its way through the city council and uh, the mayor, uh, where um, uh, a, a certain amount of money, uh, several million dollars now is being redirected uh, from policing Uh, toward uh, social services programs, educational programs, and those kind of programs that hopefully uh, can address some of these disparities. So in the end, you give young people here a greater hope. Uh, So this is a kind of a comprehensive, uh, almost complicated piece that we're seeing unfolding here in our great city.
0: All right, so I wanna transition uh, to what's going to happen in the fall. you know, Dr. Miller brought up COVID-19, which is, I mean, it's not going anywhere in the short term. It's still hovering above us. It's obviously a much more of an issue in different parts of the country. All these protests and rallies around the country have happened without college students being on campus. We know that college students on campus uh, always are more inclined to rally, protest in any form. And that's what's happened for decades. So as presidents, how will you balance when we get to the fall, September, October, and the expectation that your students will get out and express their opinion, which they have been empowered to do, certainly by you and their coaches, if they're student athletes, and their peers and their faculty at this part of the year. And that would certainly, I would think, happen in the fall. But how do you balance that with also bringing back these students and your desire to make sure that they're wearing masks, they're social distancing, when it comes to being in the classroom, walking around campus, uh, because that's gonna be a tightrope that everyone's gonna have to uh, balance essentially when the students are back in mass uh, in the fall. And once again, I will start with you, Dr. Miller.
2: Well, it it
1: certainly is gonna be a balancing um, project, but I will tell you one of the things that we've done at Hamlin that we'll figure out how to do, But for our first-time first-year students, they come back to campus early. And what we've always done is that we have them go out into the community and do service. Because we want them to see that they're a member of a variety of different communities, not just one community. And what it means to be a member of a variety of different communities. And so we want them to see their connection to the community, not just to Hamlin University we will still figure out how do we make sure that they understand what are the opportunities for them to get involved in the community outside of Hamlet. So we're working on that. But one of the things that we have done for the last few years is that we make sure that our students vote. Every student who arrives on our campus for the first time, the first day, at least by the second day, every last one is registered to vote. Every last student. So if they come to us unregistered, they are that very first year. So it's one of the reasons why we have a very high percentage of voters on our campus. So as they're they're doing this, we want them to pivot, to think about this other social responsibility. And that social responsibility means voting, getting actively involved. But my students work for the mayor's office. They work for the governor's office. They work for our, our congressional delegation's office. So they're actively involved in these issues. And being involved in
0: justice issues is a part of the DNA in Hamlet. I'm saying that's wonderful uh, and I'm glad you uh, you know educated us all on that yeah. but I'm also curious how will you balance their you know want and need to get out and raise their voice with what's going on with COVID-19?
1: I don't expect them to stop. That's what I'm saying to you. I expect our students I expect our students to continue doing what it is they've always done. A significant number of my students are from Minnesota. They're going to remain involved in this issue because this issue touches their heart. Just like Tori talked about the percentage of her students who fall into particular 43% of my incoming class last year was students of color. David can talk about this in a different way, kind of way. And I'm a product in HBCU, so I understand what it's like to be on those campus and how important these issues are for, for those students. So I don't expect my students to come back thinking this is an issue you put aside. This will be a part of classes. Uh, this will be um, uh, part of seminars that we do. We do them a little differently, but it will still be there. So they will they will get this. But my students are out there protesting. I expect them to, to still be out there protesting. That's not going to change. I, don't, I think this is a different civil rights moment. This is another civil rights moment. And I don't think these students are going to slow down until things change. And I applaud them. I absolutely applaud them. And you know what? As president, I'm going to be behind pushing them out there. Get out there. Be heard. Do. So yeah, I I want them to continue. But it will be a part of our orientation. Why shouldn't they know that George Floyd was murdered? Why shouldn't they know the way in which they're murdered? And you know why that's also important to us? Because our criminal justice program prepares police officers. So that means, how do we think about preparing these students for law enforcement? We've got to think about that uh, as well. So yes, this is a part of our conversation, but they're going to protest. We're going we're gonna to encourage them to continue to do that. And I say that because not only will the students
2: be out there, the faculty and staff will be out there with them too. Yeah, so we actually uh, brought our students back to campus for a solidarity march, which went downtown. And it was the first time I can say in my career, I've been a president for a decade. It was the first time we had 100% compliance on anything. We required masks. Everybody came with a mask. And uh, it was a proud moment uh, for me. And and unlike an HBCU, because we're a predominantly white institution, racism happens on our campus. And so we need to be aggressively... um, uh, anti-racist. I mean really going after it and and it's not enough to remove the barriers that stand in front of our black colleagues. We really do need to start knocking down the extra supports that uh, go to white people. Merit Aid is uh, an issue that I've been battling against for years because it's inherently racist. It tends to favor the wealthy white student over other students and and yeah the ivy league has stopped doing it but everybody else is in the game of giving merit assistance to folks with high test scores and that biases very much toward wealthy and white students and i've got off track there and i apologize (laughs) dr wilson
0: dr wilson
3: (laughs) yeah you know um protest and doing it peacefully is In the Morgan DNA. Uh, This is where the college sit in movement started in America in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Uh, And this is where Dr. Martin Luther King delivered his first version of his I Have a Dream speech before he eventually perfected it and delivered it on the Washington Mall. He delivered it here at Morgan. Uh, in a commencement speech uh, in uh, uh, the early 1950s. uh, I'm sorry, uh, yes, in 1956. Uh, And so uh, we expect our students uh, to be involved uh, in righting the wrongs. Um, Our motto here is growing the future, leading the world, and you can't grow the future and be quiet, and you can't lead the world and not speak up. And we expect our students to be leaders in this space. Uh, And as you've heard from Tori and Fenice, I'm going to be out there with them. Indeed, we had a march on campus uh, two Saturdays ago. And guess who led it? I did. Uh, We had over a 1,000 people. It was a very peaceful march. Um, But if I had not been a part of that, um, the statement would have basically been even more, how could the president of Morgan State University not show the way, not embrace the students who basically wanted to speak up. So even though the students were not here, several of them came to participate in that. So I expect more of that in the fall. Uh, Now, because I had participated in that march, uh, and I did notice that practically everybody—I really take my hat off them—they had on masks. Um, but I had to lead the way, and so this past week I volunteered to go and get testing, uh, which I did. And um, you know, thank you know God, it came back negative. Um, and then I posted on social media to say to our students, you know, you got to be responsible. Uh, and so when they return in the fall, you know, we are putting together something that we are calling. Um, like a social pledge of interaction. What is that going to look like on campus? So everybody will be required to wear a mask. Everybody will be required to social distance the way I'm sure, you know, Tori and Fanise are are thinking about it as well. Uh, And so if you participate uh, in a march and we fully expect that to happen because it's not going to go away, uh, then you're going to have to go through those protocols. If uh, and then we're going to have periodic testing. Uh, There will be trace uh, a tracing, uh, periodic temperature checks. Um, But there's no way that we're going to say to our students, "Go against the great Morgan way," because in doing so, uh, we would not be doing justice to this 153 year old venerable institution.
0: Well, it's great. I mean, it's wonderful to hear that. Obviously, um, everyone's going to plow through it and just adjust. Uh, And and we've seen that. I mean, the majority of of rallies and protests we've seen, the majority of people are wearing masks. So people are adhering and and balancing the two. Um, I know none of you are a president of a Power Five institution, but there has been a clear shift here in terms of the acceptance and the encouragement of student athletes to speak up, to be visible. uh, And coaches are marching with their student athletes. I don't think that would have happened whether it's six months, a year ago, five, ten years ago, 20 years ago, certainly not 40, 50 years ago. Um, Dr. Miller, why do you think at the high profile, high major universities where, you know, football, men's basketball are king and their huge revenue uh, for the institutions and for the NCAA, that there now is acceptance and encouragement for student athletes to speak up and not fear any reprisal whatsoever by doing so.
1: Well, I think Colin Kaepernick showed everybody the way and we should have been paying attention to what he was doing and not denigrating him because he had it right. And and and, and I will just say this, shame on those people for not understanding, appreciating what he did at that time. It took George Floyd's murder for people to step back and take a look at why Kaepernick was uh, Copernic was doing what he was doing and why some of the others were following along by taking that knee. Now we understand that knee in a very, very different kind of way because of George Floyd's murder. So I, I think that it's it's about time, but I will say this, that I think those of us who, and I cannot speak for D1 or D2, but I can speak for D3, um, I think some of us have been pushing in this envelope for quite some time. I'm very pleased to say that my football coach is Black. My athletic director is Latino. My associate athletic director is a woman. So we have been trying to make sure that this space, this athletic space, is one that people understand that it's a diverse space and that we, as leaders in this space, have a responsibility to help our students understand what their role is because they are students first and understand what it means to be a student athlete a student athlete means you get involved in all of the issues that, that that involve your community, inside and out, and not just athletics. So I think now we've come to the realization that our students are not just athletes. They And, and that's the reason why people are paying attention to this. They're athletes. And I'm going to be a little cynical too, if, if, if I might here. Sure. And, 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 I, and I apologize in advance for being a little cynical. Some have to be now cognizant of these issues because you have to look at who those basketball and football players are from a racial perspective. If you don't pay attention to that, then you are negatively impacting those students and your institution. So and, and really, you have to pay attention to what these students have been saying and asking for for so long and shame on us that it took George Floyd's murder. It took us seeing that knee applied to his neck, rather than a knee being applied to the ground, for us to step back and say, we need to change. We need to be involved and we need all of our athletes to understand who they are and why race matters. Why being Black matters within our society.
0: So So,
2: um uh, Muhammad Ali had a relationship with um, our university, learned to box in our gymnasium, and I had the privilege as a young adult to work for him um, uh, in starting the Muhammad Ali Center and got to um, really know one of the magical human beings on the planet. And of course, he was denigrated in his time, and I almost came to physical blows with a faculty member who said that Muhammad Ali did nothing for civil rights. And I said, Muhammad Ali went around the world in 1963 shouting, I am the greatest. And no one could prove him wrong. Tell me that did nothing for civil rights. But that sense of the athlete showing the way, the athlete taking the courageous stand and paying a very high price for it, it cost Muhammad the prime of his boxing career. And it has cost Colin Kaepernick um, as well. But that, that hindsight that says he was right, they were right, this is right. Um, and uh, to be able to watch our young athletes, the great thing about the protests I've seen is the youth of the protesters. I mean, I've seen like five and six-year-olds out there. Obviously, their parents involved, but, but that sense of how young they are. It's our students, and it's high school students who are out. Um, showing the way and good on them and I do believe it is the athletes that they look up to that they're saying if this athlete thinks this is important I can step out and it'll be all right
3: and I I think across um, the institutions that you spoke about I think there is a revelation occurring here and is and it's, it's a recognition that they have invested collectively billions of dollars uh, into athletics uh, and many of those alumni and students relate to the institution in that capacity. And what you are seeing now is, I think, an understanding that perhaps that could be threatened if those institutions are hell-bent on not changing, that the prim- primarily the basketball and football teams are overwhelmingly Black, and those are the major revenue sports. And if those institutions that are in the category that you name don't really move significantly uh, to perhaps a culture on the campuses of belonging, that you really belong here. And we're not just here cheering for you on Saturday afternoon, but not thinking on Monday through Friday that you really are a part of the fabric of this institution. Uh, with all of the rights enjoyed by everybody else. Uh, that is not a good place to be. And so I this is my first experience working full-time in, in HBCU, uh, Morganist Division One. Um, my entire career has been in major D1 institutions. I was at Rutgers for Oh, eight, nine years, I was vice president at Auburn for 11 years, and then a chancellor within the University of Wisconsin system uh, before I came here. So I do have an understanding of this across the genres, if you will. Um, and uh, the last point, Andy, is that, I think what we are seeing as well is a social consciousness amongst of uh, black student athletes around this issue on top of some of the other things that you've seen. And I think some of them are questioning, is this the type of institution I really want to not just go and play football or basketball, but have a kind of a comprehensive affirming experience. And what you are seeing, and we picked up a couple of student athletes in this category, uh, is that I think uh, some of them are, are, are actually giving HBCUs uh, a long look. And so we just uh, you know, picked up a four-star uh, uh, student-athlete uh, in basketball, another three-star in football that uh, turned out offers at major schools. So the point I'm making is that um, this is a moment, or this is an inflection point uh, for the nation, is an inflection point for our institutions, And I don't think we can just pretend that we went to sleep Rip Van Winkle style, uh, slept for 20 years, uh, and we are going to awake and go back to the way things were. No, we're gonna have to change. And athletics is gonna have to change, else I think all of those investments that have been made in those institutions across the way are not going to uh, sustain themselves.
0: Yeah, there's no question that uh, I think we are in an era that for boosters and donors and casual fans that love to cheer uh, these athletes, you know, on a Saturday during the week. Um, they also need to treat them with respect and cheer them just when they're living their lives when they don't have the uniform on for that particular school. I want to end with an educational aspect here because you all three of you are educators um, Juneteenth, uh, the end of slavery. Uh, go back to another topic that's certainly been in the news of late, um, the massacre in Tulsa, uh, you know, over hundred years ago. Um, And I don't expect you to basically discuss, you know, the the educational teachings across this country, but overall, it's not uniform. It's been poor in a lot of these instances where the full American history story is not told, certainly not from an African-American perspective. Uh, So, especially with Juneteenth, um, what does that date, that significance, that moment in history mean to each one of you? And how should it be even more emphasized throughout the curriculum if it's missed at the secondary school level, and how it really should be even more enforced in higher education? And I will start with you uh, as we have throughout the course of this uh, talk to Miller.
1: Well, Juneteenth is certainly an important day, and and it it always amazes me the number of people who don't understand the significance of that day for black people in this country. Uh, I think that it's really important that uh, our students understand and appreciate what Juneteenth is, uh, why it is celebrated by so many of us, and connect it to what it is, what's happening now. Uh, We've come a long way since Juneteenth, but we need to let our students know that we still have a long way to go. As Martin Luther King said, we haven't yet reached the promised land, and we've got to figure out how do we get to that promised land. And the only way we're going to do that is make sure that if they come to us and they don't understand race, they don't understand the, 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 the impact of slavery on what is happening today, then that is our responsibility as higher ed institutions, is help them make that connection in the way in which we teach, what we expose them to, and what we expect of them. I think we have to have our expectations high for for them understanding who they are as people and what role they need to play in moving our nation forward. So Juneteenth is a very important date that all, all Americans should know about. And we need to start now. This is our moment to make sure that people understand the significance of that day and why these events today are so important that we pay attention to, and we act on.
2: So I uh, am Mm -hmm. embarrassed to admit that for the first time, uh, Spalding declared a holiday uh, on on Friday, June 19th, and um, we should have done it years ago. Um, but for 155 years, uh, slavery has been an and legally legal slavery has been in an end and we still have not found equal justice for all in this country. And the, the events we celebrate on the 4th of July are all based on the fruit of a poisonous tree, which was slavery. And, and we need to come to terms with that in different ways. And, and it's even bigger than that. It's the sort of the, 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 colonial models of the of the planet I busted out of some trees in rural Kenya 200 miles from the nearest road and had Maasai children run screaming from me because of my white skin and that wasn't about slavery that was about white people being evil in that part of the world and and we need to recognize that the the colonial history is not just here it's worldwide
0: David? So so, uh,
3: for for me, Juneteenth also represents um, this uh, kind of suppression of the the informing of individuals who were enslaved of the fact that they had been free. Uh, And when Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation uh, there were still white plantation owners um, who basically did not inform uh, their slaves of that and it kept them in slavery. Uh, and that word slowly then made its way to places like Oklahoma. Uh, and so when eventually they were told that, oh, you're free. And the question was asked, well, when did that happen? Of course they said, well, it was some like, in June, right? And, and so that's sort of the way I understand you know, Juneteenth. So, so Juneteenth represents uh, for me, of course, uh, the desire on the part of our nation at the time to continue to enslave a people even though they had been set free. And then when you juxtapose that with regard to where we are today, it's it's kind of sad because in a different kind of way, we still are living in an era, you know, where individuals are experiencing inequality, injustice, it's almost a different way of keeping individuals enslaved, a different kind of way, uh, and so it's, it, it it has historical significance on the one hand uh, but then and celebrating it today the question is how do we remove that scourge you know from our country and paint it differently and point it in a different direction and i think that's sort of what you're seeing with social unrest as well and it's kind of interesting that these two are coming together at this period Um, i guess my last point is that if i if i were in a position particularly in tulsa where i could wave the magic wand i would go there with a reform package i would go there with an intent to take that area of the United States that was the Black Wall Street, and we are going to make whatever, the trillion-dollar investment and return at least this area to what it could have been if, for example, those race riots had not destroyed all of that Black wealth and all of that Black prosperity. So um, I would see it as a point of departure now uh, to build a new kind of nation, perhaps using Tulsa as a model.
0: And I would just echo again that I, you know, I really think we need to continue to educate, redo the textbooks to make sure the Black Wall Street massacre is highlighted, and of course Juneteenth as well, because I think it's it's unfortunately been omitted too many times. Um, This has been incredibly educational, I think, for everyone watching, uh, informational, as all these chats have been over the last 13 weeks. I really appreciate the time and effort, uh, Dr. uh, Dr. Wilson, President McClure, um, Dr. Miller, for taking some time uh, during your busy schedules. And uh, more than anything, we all hope that you stay safe, uh, a healthy return to campus. And as we know, you, your students, will continue to be engaged in these important topics uh, over the coming year and years. Uh, You can always check out all our coverage on our social series at ncaa.org slash social series. We've got all 12, actually all 13 weeks archived right there for you to check out what we've done. And we're going to continue this every week, really, for the foreseeable future. We appreciate all the engagement for everyone here On this discussion, I'm Andy Katz. Thanks for watching.